Good morning, everybody. Oh, it's wonderful to see you here today at the Vista. If we haven't met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. If you join us for the first time, first time in a long time, maybe it's your first time at church in a really long time. Uh, we're just so glad that you joined us today. A lot of us remember what it's like to go to a church for the first time, and so we hope that you feel loved and welcomed and wanted that you fit right in and make yourself at home here today at the Vista. Uh, today, we're in the second week of our new summer series called Summer in the Psalms, a series that's very aptly titled because we will indeed be spending a lot of our summer in the Psalms. Uh, you might have noticed our worship structure order is a little bit different too. We're doing one or two songs up top and then two or three at the end uh, because the Psalms just beg to be sung. Right? They're a songbook. And so we thought we'd switch up the worship order to kind of bring that out uh, of our different texts. So don't worry, I'm not going to preach for an hour. Long sermons kill people. There's a story in Acts about Paul preached a long sermon that killed somebody once. And so <laughs> fell out of the window, fell asleep. It was terrible. Um, so don't worry, it won't be an hour. Um, while all of the Bible is, uh, you know, inspired by God and thus very profitable for us, I think it's okay and maybe even important to admit that some parts of the Bible are they're a little bit more profitable than others, right? Like, have you ever read Leviticus? Any? Yeah, it's, it's a tough read. It's where a lot of read the Bible and your plans go to die, right? They get to February and then it's just all over. There's a lot of talk about animal livers and beard grooming and menstrual cycles and crushed testicles making appearance or two. There's some really odd stuff there. And yet, to be clear, the church in her great wisdom correctly discerned that Leviticus did belong in the Bible because amidst all the talk about blood and beards and cycles and testicles, there are some very important things being communicated to us. And so it's good that we have Leviticus. And yet, while Leviticus is inspired and profitable for us, it's okay to admit that a book like, you know, Psalms is probably a little bit more profitable for us to read, and thus it's entirely appropriate that you would spend more time reading Psalms in your life than you do Leviticus. Uh, I always get a kick out of these people who want to sound very spiritual, you know, these sorts of people, and they love to say things like, well, actually, Leviticus is my favorite book of the Bible. And I always think, man... Stop trying so hard. You know what I mean? That's like saying Ringo was the best Beatle. You know, yes, he was in the band, but was he John, Paul, or George's music equal? No, stop trying so hard. It's fine to just be in the band. Case in point, the New Testament itself quotes and alludes to Psalms way more than it does Leviticus. And actually, the New Testament alludes and quotes the Psalms more than it does any other Old Testament book. Which means that from the very beginning, Christians understood that the Psalms were uniquely profitable for us. More specifically, right, the church has always recognized that the Psalms were unique and they were special and they were especially profitable because the Psalms are so profoundly honest. Right, the Psalms just tell us the truth, no filter the truth about how, how wonderful, how terrible, and everything in between wonderful and terrible it can be to try to live a life of faithfulness as an imperfect person in a very unfaithful world. Psalms tell us the truth about it. So last week, Dave kicked things off by starting at the beginning in Psalm 1. And today, we're going to jump a little bit deeper into the Psalms and talk about one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 73. So if you have your Bibles, grab them. It's very easy to find. It's kind of towards the middle there. Or you can read it on the screen with me if you'd like. Psalm 73. We'll read the whole thing. It's not too long. It says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, uh, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps almost slipped. 
For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. Used to be a compliment. Um, They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. There it is again. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and they wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens. I love this image. Their tongue parades through the earth. You remember anybody whose tongue is just parading through the earth? Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say to themselves, well, how does God know? And is there really knowledge with the most high? Now behold, these are the wicked and always at ease they have increased in wealth. And so surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I've been stricken all day long. I've been chastened every morning. But if I had said, I will speak thus, right? If I had said this out loud, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction, how they're destroyed in a moment. They're utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream, when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You've taken hold of my right hand with your counsel. You will guide me, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Because whom have I in heaven? But you, and besides you, God, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Psalm 73, 1 through 28. All right, so let's start off with a little uh, crowd-sourced polling. Show of hands, okay? Can any of you think of someone whose life appears to be going way better than they deserve? (laughs) Put it more bluntly, can you think of somebody whose life should suck because they suck, and yet it doesn't suck, and that kind of sucks because you think their life should suck because they suck? You got somebody like that? Right, Is is it Dave? No, he's not here to defend himself, we can't say. I think if we're being honest, we've all got people like this, people who we see and and experience with this very complicated mix of envy and contempt. We we envy them. We're envious of their jobs, their wealth, their homes, their hairline, their waistline, their free time. We're envious of them because everything just seems to be going their way all the time. And yet we also feel a little bit of contempt toward them because for whatever reason, We just feel like they don't deserve to have everything going their way all the time, man. Maybe it's because we think they're shallow or selfish or greedy or superficial or whatever the case may be, but it burns us that they have it so good. I'm not afraid to admit, I've got some people like this. I actually have a list. I keep it with me at all times. No, um, now sometimes somebody will send me, you know, some something, some like an Instagram reel or TikTok video of some, uh, you know, celebrity pastor supposedly saying something spiritually profound. And look, I really do appreciate that you think of me. And you send me those videos. I appreciate it. But I got to be honest with you. I will never watch one of those stupid videos. (laughs) Because I hate, I loathe 
this entire wannabe famous Christian celeb influencer pastor culture thing. I hate it. And I don't hate them because I know I'm not allowed to hate them because somehow Jesus loves them. But I just feel like they deserve not something terrible, not polio, but maybe they deserve like a year-long case of chicken pox on their face. That's what I feel like they would deserve, right? You got people like that. We all got people like that. And it burns us to see somebody who you think is worse than you, have it better than you, burns you. Right? And this thought, this is kind of twisted, okay? It's kind of twisted, but it's a very universal and deeply human thought. It appears to be the instigator for our psalm for today, Psalm 73. Writer starts off by confessing that he believes that God is good to Israel. He, does. he believes that God's good to God's people, but he also knows what it's like to kind of find it hard to believe that God is good to God's people. And in verses 3 through 9, he explains why. He says, I was envious of the arrogant and the wicked because they just seem to have it so good. They're always at ease. They have everything they want. Their eyes are fat. You know, <laughs> They have everything going their way, man. And worst of all, don't really seem to be any consequences. Right, this would be like looking at the, uh, whatever, the housing market crash of 2008. You remember that? Seeing all the selfish and immoral decisions that were made by people and then seeing that so many of the people who made those decisions not only did not really face any consequences, but they actually made out really well financially because of some of their immoral decisions. Because, quick glance at the world, it, it doesn't always look like sinfulness prompts the consequences that you would think it would, Right? And so in verses 12 through 14, the psalmist just says it about as plainly as it can be said. He said, behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. So surely I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence in vain. For I've been stricken all day long and I've been chastened every morning. And this in verses 12 through 14 is what we might call uh, saying the quiet part out loud. You know that phrase? It's a wonderful little phrase that so far as I can tell was first used on a Simpsons episode about 30 years ago. Say the quiet part out loud. Um, and it's just a phrase that means you say out loud the thing everybody else is thinking but is for whatever reason not willing to say. And the quiet part that the psalmist has said out loud is that if sinfulness seems to produce good consequences even more than it does bad consequences, then why would you bother being good why bother being good if being good is not good for you? If you've been at Vista for long, then you know we try to be a place where skeptics are welcome. You know, uh, we want to be the place where you come with your doubts, not the place that you avoid because you've got doubts. Right? And it's because our doubts come in all different shapes and sizes, and God's got room for all of them because God's not intimidated by any of them. In fact, we've got this class called Alpha. It's for people who are new to or skeptical about faith that'll launch again in the fall. If you're one of those people and you've got doubts, man, try that class out. Um, as many modern people, we often have doubts about God's existence. Because for various reasons, we modern people, we look around the world and uh, it's just not as clear to us that God is there. We, we feel God's absence in ways previous generations didn't. Modern people look at the world and it's just not as obvious that a good and gracious God made it and sustains it. But for most of human history, the greatest doubt was not whether or not God existed, but rather it was whether or not God was faithful. All right? When you read in scripture, pay close attention. When you see people struggling with God, what they're really struggling with is this issue of God's faithfulness. It's people going, God, you, you promised that you would be there for us. You promised that you would have our back, that we could always count on you. And yet, our pets' heads are falling off 
And where are you? You don't appear to be coming through for us. And this question of God's faithfulness to us is alive and evergreen question, because if you haven't noticed, our faithfulness is quite often quite costly. Our faithfulness is costly. It is costly. It is difficult to be radically generous, to pray for our enemies. You ever pray for your enemies? It sucks. It's so terrible. To turn the other cheek, to care for difficult people, to submit to one another, to serve one another, to practice spiritual disciplines, that stuff's all difficult. And so if your faith is not costing you anything except an hour occasionally on Sunday mornings, then you got some questions to ask yourself about your faith because our faithfulness is costly. And so if your faithfulness to God is costly, why would you do it if you don't get anything out of it? Why would you be faithful to God at great cost to yourself if God cannot be trusted to be faithful to you in return? And here we happen upon a thicket of very thorny theological questions. And so let's start navigating our way through the thicket with this. Here is a a quote from Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is a pastor of a very large church in Atlanta. And I want you to think about whether or not you agree with it. Okay, here's the quote. It says, following Jesus will make your life better. And it'll make you better at life. Following Jesus will make your life better and it'll make you better at life. What do you think? Yes? No? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it does have some of these like uh, yucky prosperity gospel vibes. You get that little whiff of prosperity gospel stuff now? Because it could easily lead you to believe that following Jesus is just a means to getting your life better, which most of us tend to think in terms of what? More stuff, more success, more worldly prosperity. As we just discussed, this is not a particularly biblical idea because Scripture is very clear that our faithfulness is often a source of adversity and not just worldly prosperity. And so from that angle, boo, Andy Stanley. But, 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 it's also a little bit more complicated than that because while Scripture clearly teaches that our faithfulness is often a source of adversity and not just prosperity, Scripture does also teach that our faithfulness is often a source of prosperity. And you remember what Dave talked about last week? Psalm 1, 1 through 3, we'll read it again. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, what are these last two words? He prospers, right? And so there it is. Faithfulness creates prosperity. Prosperity is often a consequence of faithfulness. There are tons of places in the Bible that say this or something just like this, and we have mountains of evidence indicating that this is true. So, for example, we have tons of social science evidence that tells us that one of the, if not the primary determiner of quality of life is a trait called conscientiousness. It's a fun word. Say it with me. Conscientiousness. And conscientiousness basically means being a uh, responsible and disciplined person. A conscientious person is a person with a highly functioning conscience. And I doubt that any of you will find it surprising to learn that responsible and disciplined people tend to be better at their jobs, have a better work-life balance, have a higher overall quality of life, and a much higher quality of life by virtually every higher life satisfaction, by literally every metric imaginable, than people 
who are not responsible in discipline. Is that surprising to you? Like, duh. And if you're one of those people who, does the, you know, you just don't think that responsibility is important because you think that you're doing just fine without it, thank you, then that's probably because some responsible person in your life is cleaning up your messes and changing your diapers, but your head's so far up your you-know-what that you don't even notice it, right? I'm saying that on behalf of all the responsible people in the room today. I hope you feel seen. I hope you feel seen. Um, I also doubt that you will find it particularly surprising that one of the, if not the primary creators of conscientiousness in people is faith. That faith has always been, is, and even in an increasingly post-Christian culture, it will continue to be the primary source of most conscientiousness in most people. Right? To put this a bit simpler, wise people do tend to be better at life. And following Jesus does have a tendency to make us wiser. Does that make sense? All right, and so in that general qualified sense, yeah, following Jesus will make your life better and will make you better at life because you'll be a wiser person. That's true. But now to circle back to this dilemma at the heart of Psalm 73, why would you bother being good if it's not good for you? Why be faithful to God if God cannot be trusted to be faithful in return? The psalmist begins answering his own question in verse 17. You can turn back there. He says, uh, he starts by saying that he came into the sanctuary of God. That's the phrase that's used, right? He came into the sanctuary of God. And it's very important to note, right? Because he's got these doubts. He's just voiced them through the first 16 verses. He's got these doubts. But do his doubts keep him out of the sanctuary of God? No. He just brings his doubts onto the sanctuary with him. He's like, I got these doubts. Guess I better go to church and sort them out, right? And again, that's the way we want you to think about your doubts. And then as he's in the sanctuary, in the temple, and worship with God's people, he, he has this epiphany where he sees something that changes everything for him. To be more specific, he sees two somethings. First, he sees that while wickedness is not always punished with the severity or punctuality that we wish it were, wickedness is always punished. Always punished. In verses 18 through 20, the psalmist says that this prosperity of the wicked that he has seen and it's made him really mad, he also says it's what? It's temporary. It's slippery. It's fragile. He says that God will eventually cast them down to destruction. When it comes to God's judgment upon wickedness, we have two kind of different but complementary ideas at work. In Scripture, the first is this very active, aggressive picture of God's judgment where God actively intervenes to punish wickedness. Now, if you're a parent with kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? There are times where you can't just let it play itself out. You can't just let Junior learn the lesson. No, you got to just kind of intervene, lay down the law, put a stop to the wickedness, okay? So that's the way God does it sometimes. But then you have the second picture wherein, I don't know, it's a more organic, patient picture of God's judgment upon wickedness, uh, wherein God doesn't really need to intervene to punish people for wickedness because wickedness is its own punishment. You see this really clearly in a place like Romans 1. You remember that where we're told that the wrath of God is poured out on creation, all right? Ooh, what does that look like? Well, time and time again, Paul says, God poured out his wrath on people by giving them what they want. God poured his wrath out on people by saying, you want this sin, I'll, I'll give it to you, right? That's what God's wrath looks like because the real punishment for being a greedy, self-absorbed person is not a lightning bolt to the brain from the heavens. But rather, the real punishment for being a greedy, self-absorbed person is that you have to be a greedy, self-absorbed person. Any of you ever been a greedy, self-absorbed person? I have a lot of experience in this field, and um, it's not a lot of fun. All that to say, the first thing the psalmist sees in the sanctuary is that while it might not happen in the fashion that he wished it did, wickedness is always punished. 
Nobody ever gets away with anything because wickedness is inherently punishing. Then the second part of the psalmist's epiphany is that he sees that the ultimate shape of God's faithfulness to us is not worldly prosperity for us, but God's nearness to us. i say that again. The ultimate shape of God's faithfulness to us is not worldly prosperity for us, but rather it's God's nearness to us. <clears throat> Dave talked on this some last week when he talked about how God's blessings come to various people in various seasons and various forms based upon variables that we'll never be able to completely understand or comprehend. And so taken in its totality, I'd suggest the scripture is very clear that while God loves to bless his children with good things, God loves to bless you with good things. Of course God does. Right? Scripture is also very clear that no child of God is promised great wealth, great health, great status, great success, great worldly prosperity. We are not promised any of those things. But the one blessing that is absolutely unconditional, the one blessing we can always count on is God's nearness. And now some of you are thinking, I'd prefer a Land Rover. <laughs> and that's, that's part of the problem, right? And so what is God's nearness? trickier to define than you think, but it's a number of things. I suppose it's that personal sense of communion with our maker that I think probably all of us have felt at some moment. You know, it's, it's the peace that you feel in morning prayer. And you know what I'm talking about? Oh. It's the joy that you feel enjoying a good meal with friends. It's uh, the forgiveness that you know when you walk over to those tables and you receive communion. It's the gratitude that sets in on your heart when the sun sets on the end of a really good day. And so it's, it's personal, God's nearness, but it's also very communal. Because being near to God means being near to God's people. It's inclusion in a community of faith. And all the invisible blessings that go with that, right? The wisdom, the stability, the help that is uniquely present when we gather together as God's people. It's not just magically out there in the world and you shouldn't take it for granted. It's uniquely present here in ways... You don't see, because it's like trying to talk to a fish about water, you know? Let's end with this. If you're here today, or you're listening in you know, later, uh, chances are that you're probably not one of those flagrantly wicked people that the psalmist <clears throat> has talked about. Because if you were, you just probably wouldn't bother, you know? And so I'd be willing to bet that for most of us here today, the greatest temptation that we face is not some sort of flagrant wickedness, so much as it is what I would call calculated faithfulness. Calculated faithfulness. And what I mean by this is that I really do think that most of us want to be faithful. And we are willing to pay the cost of our faithfulness. Up to a point. Yeah, we kind of we we have a limit on it, though. So we very easily fall into this sort of calculated faithfulness when you never say this out loud, right? But this is what's going on in your brain. You want to find this sweet spot where you're like faithful enough to live with a clean conscience, live wisely and enjoy some fruit, some prosperity from that wisdom. But you don't want to be so faithful that it causes you a lot of adversity. Right. We want to be faithful, yeah, but not so faithful that it cramps our style. Have I said the quiet part out loud? Oh. 
I gotta tell you, this is a tough one. There is no easy solution here, and God knows that God does not expect us to enjoy adversity. You remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane in agony? You remember that story <clears throat> before the crucifixion? You notice that Jesus didn't say, God, this adversity is so great, man. This is a great time. Can we do this every Thursday? Just put it on the calendar? No, Jesus hated the adversity that his faithfulness caused, okay? And so this is not about you needing to be a masochist to enjoy his adversity. It's not about that. We're not asked to enjoy adversity, but I do think that Psalm 73 would prompt us to aspire to be people who cherish God's blessings, absolutely, in the various forms that they come to us over the course of our lives. We cherish God's blessings, but that we would be people who understand that God's ultimate blessing is God's nearness. And so that we could say truthfully with the psalmist, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I've made the Lord my refuge. Amen? Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We are glad that you have decided to let us be here for another day in your imperfect but still very good world. We come before you and we admit that when we look around the world, man, it just doesn't look like wickedness is getting the consequences that it should. We see people all around us who have it better than us. And we don't understand it and it frustrates us. And so often we feel as though our faithfulness doesn't produce the dividends that we wish it would. And so we just tell you the truth about that. We bring it before you. We come into your sanctuary with it because you want to hear about it because you know what it's like to be a human. And we ask that you would help us to become people who enjoy your blessings in whatever form they come, but who understand that the ultimate blessing you could ever offer us is yourself. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.